This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The affordable housing crisis has been in the headlines in Canada for a while now, right? We've talked about it quite a bit here on the show, and it continues to get worse. Generally speaking. That's what we hear, right? It's a crisis. It's been called a crisis, and uh, different uh, governments have come up with different levels of strategies to try and tackle it. But uh, clearly, we have a long way to go. There's a lot of different ideas mentioned as possible ways to get there. There's a big story today we're working on getting some more information on about fourplexes, which are illegal in a lot of places. I didn't realize that, Um, but that's basically like a... You know, a, a multifamily dwelling that's not, you know, it's not huge. It's not an apartment building, but it's instead of a duplex, it's a fourplex. I didn't know they were illegal, but maybe we need more of those. That would certainly help. But lots, like I can say, a million different ideas out there. And frankly, at a time like this, we need to be listening to all of those ideas and at least give them a shot if they have any chance of helping out. But are there solutions we can find that are already proving to be successful? And if so, where are they? What are people doing? We're going to speak with Brian Doucette, the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion at the University of Waterloo. Brian, uh, thank you for being here today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good morning. Good to speak to you again. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, lots of the coverage about this issue, like I say, draws comparisons between Canada and other places around the world. And uh, in the piece you wrote for the conversation, you talk about Vienna and Singapore, both cases that I often hear like, hey, these guys got it figured out. Um, but uh, are, are those really relevant to, to what we're facing here? Can those apply directly here? Or is it Venice? Yeah, that's, that's, a question. that's a great question. And I mean, I lived abroad. I lived in the Netherlands for, for more than a decade. And so we've studied housing in, in, in other places. And there is a role for it. There's a role to look at other places and be inspired by what they've done and what they're doing. But to say, well, we can just replicate that. I mean, you take a city like Vienna, and they started building social housing over 100 years ago in a very different context where they've kept building today. And so it's it's very difficult for us to say, well, we're just going to take what's worked in Vienna and apply it here um, because we don't have that history. We only have in Canada about three and a half percent of our housing stock being social housing. And we're not very good at building a lot of it more more recently. So it's great to be inspired by other places. But for really hands on practical, like this is what we need to do. We, we also need to really look at the things that we're doing well in this country or the things that might be a small-scale initiative that we can scale up or things that, that would apply to our context, uh, which is very different from Vienna or Singapore yeah. or Copenhagen. So if if we take a look at closer to home, like within our country, are there jurisdictions that have come up with some good ideas? Are there plans that we can try and emulate and expand across the country, do you think? Yeah, I mean, and you touched upon it in the, in the opening, right, that there's no one thing that is going to no. solve all this, right? And things like fourplexes, yeah, that's good. There's a lot of good things to, uh, about it, but it's not, it's not the magic bullet that some people claim it to be. I think we need to think about three kind of things. We need to think a lot more carefully, not just about adding supply, but supply for whom? What kind of housing are we building? What kind of supply are we adding? Uh, the second thing we need to do is uh, protect tenants. Tenants and landlords are in a very uneven power relationship, as anyone who's rented or anyone who's been a landlord can attest. And we need to find 
ways to protect tenants to, in, to ensure that tenants have, have adequate rights. And the third piece, which we often forget about, is keeping the housing that already is affordable, keeping it affordable not just for the current people, the current tenants living in it, but for future tenants down the line. And the good news is, yes, there are examples of all of those things across Canada that we can learn from. Uh, let's go through a couple that you cite in the piece. Whistler, uh, yeah. the housing, they, they, they actually put in a housing authority in Whistler. What do they got right? So what they've done, they have this sort of municipally owned kind of partnership where new housing is being developed on formerly publicly owned land, which opens up a lot of possibilities for, uh, for sort of thinking beyond the market. And they've built housing that's only really for employees in Whistler. So that's an issue that, you know, is, is a big concern in, in Whistler. How do you, you know, how do you keep a workforce in a tourism sector with a lot of lower wage jobs where housing prices are really high? So they've oriented this towards uh, workers if you're working in Whistler. And they've essentially decoupled the buying and selling prices that they offer uh, from the market. Then they've set rents at 30% of, of a person's income. So that means that... <laughs> You can buy a, a sort of three-bedroom, family-sized home in Whistler for about half a million dollars, which is, you know, I don't think you can get that in Edmonton. Nope. I don't think you can get that, certainly not here in southern Ontario. Yeah. The catch being, when you go to sell it, it's still in the price-restricted category. So you're selling it to the next person at maybe 575000 or okay. 580000 So it keeps that supply affordable. So you're not going to get rich from it, but you're going to have a place to live in Whistler where you work, where you can raise a family, where you can, can live. And I, I spoke to some people in Whistler who were, were like, you know, we're about to leave. We were about to leave the community entirely and move back to another part of the country until we got this Whistler Housing Authority property and were able to buy. And now they're planting down roots there. So that's a, a model that I think other communities could really emulate. Yeah, that's an interesting one for sure. One of the things you talk about, and I think these sort of go together in a way, um, rent control and rent evictions. Because when we talk about mm-hmm. rent control, a lot of people say, well, the easy way, right? If you bring that in, and, and you know, in, in the province, you know, the ministers in Alberta have said, if you do that, you bring in rent control. The only thing that happens is they just boot them out, say we got to renovate, and then a month later, they put it back on the market at a, at a much higher price. You've found a couple of jurisdictions that deal with both of those situations, right? Yeah, so rent control is really important for existing tenants, but also if you have rent control tied to the unit rather than the tenant, which is called vacancy control. That means that when a tenant leaves and a new tenant comes in, there's still a continuation of that rent control. In most parts of the country, when a tenant leaves for whatever reason, the unit they're renting is no longer subject to um, rent control increases, so the landlord can set the rent at whatever they want, and then the new tenant is paying a lot more. And in most cases, then that price increase is subject to rent control. Right. But this is where we'd see someone getting evicted who's lived in a place for a long time. They may be paying 750 bucks a month, right? And the landlord realizes, hey, average rents in the area are much, much higher. I can make a lot more with a new tenant. Landlord kicks the tenant out, right? Evicts them, displaces them. And then without vacancy control, that rent can go from 750 a month to... 1700 2000 a month for the new tenant. And this is how we're losing a lot of housing that actually is affordable. Some of it's getting knocked down, yep. uh, but a lot of it is still there, and uh, it's just no longer affordable. And in some cases, and, and you, you mentioned New, New Westminster tackling this, they'll evict yep. the tenant on the premise that, hey, we got to renovate, you got to go. We're, we, it's, it's, we, we can't have this anymore. We're going to redo the whole place. And then, you know, like that tenant has to leave, and then, like we say, the, the rent goes up, you know, 
tenfold. Who knows? Whatever. Exactly. Uh, so they they come up with a way to make sure that doesn't happen, right? You've got to really make a good yeah. case if you want to toss someone. Yeah. So this happens. Renovations happen across the country. Uh, it will happen in Alberta, in Ontario, you know, across across the Canada and, and beyond. And what New Westminster did is it threatened to fine landlords up to $1,000 a day and remove their business license if they sort of unjustly evicted tenants for renovations. And they made it very difficult. You know, the, the landlords had to basically prove the tenant had to leave in order to renovate right. the unit, and there had to be an offer of them being able to return. And this went from, in New Westminster, having about 300 renovations in the few years prior to the the bylaw being introduced in, in 2019 to zero the year after, and the British Columbia uh, government has also adopted similar rules province-wide. It's one of those things, you know, that if we had the political will to actually do something about it, we could stop these unjust and, and quite frankly, cruel practices of evicting people from their homes simply to slap on a new coat of paint and, you know, bring new people yeah. in at much higher rents. We, we could end this at a stroke of a pen, and it wouldn't cost taxpayers any anything really apart from maybe a bylaw enforcer to to make sure landlords are following the rules that's you know a lot of these solutions are kind of hiding in plain sight right right in front of us big pushback from landlords though i can imagine there would be right right i mean they they can't be with happy with that kind of new laws so the 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 anti-renovation bylaw in new westminster was was taken all the way up to the bc supreme court which ruled that no this is legal um I mean, development in New Westminster is is booming. The city has just said, you know, we want development to take place in certain areas, and we want these, you know, apartments with that provide a, a, a good source of affordable housing. We want those to, you know, remain affordable for people. So they send a very clear message that sort of says there are some rules you have to play by. Um, so far, it doesn't seem to be stopping development. Landlords may not like it. I mean, my, my message to, to landlords who, you know, don't want, you know, don't want to be in housing anymore or can't make the money they want to make in housing is sell. I mean, there's a lot of nonprofits, and I talk about this in some of the, uh, in the report that the, the conversation article is based upon. There are a lot of nonprofits who are looking to acquire housing yeah. uh, to keep it affordable, to decommodify it, to remove the profit element from it. So there's been several examples, uh, you know, good examples across the country where nonprofits will just buy up buildings that landlords, private landlords, commercial landlords no longer want. So if it's a business that's not making any money, it still needs to provide good housing. And there are lots of nonprofits in, in every community that, that sometimes are just looking for play, looking for property. Um, and that would be a, a win-win in a, in a sense, right? Um, it would keep that housing affordable. And you think of community land trust, you think of nonprofits. City of Montreal actually has a, a fairly well-established acquisition strategy to uh, to buy property that's for sale on the open market and, and decommodify it and turn it into social housing, nonprofit housing. I think that's the best example in the country of that. But again, every community will have their own nonprofits that are looking for opportunities and, and maybe access to financing. Maybe they already have it and they're looking for, for housing stock that uh, they could take out of the hands of private landlords and, and keep it affordable and, and decommodify it. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that that was taking place. I was really interested to read that. Um, Brian, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time today.